When you look at the military and sports medicine, which is taking care of injuries of the, the shoulder, the knee, the hip, the foot and ankle, but injuries of the joint, injuries of cartilage, injury of muscle, tendon, meniscus, keeping you active and out there. That's what we do in, in sports medicine. That military has done an amazing job with that. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a first-hand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we speak with retired Navy Captain Dr. Matthew Provencher, one of the nation's leading orthopedic surgeons specializing in the surgical treatment and rehabilitation of injuries to the knee and shoulder. Matt talks about the training pathway to becoming a Navy orthopedic surgeon who specializes in shoulder, knee, and sports surgery. Dr. Provencher has enjoyed an amazing career and he describes some of the highlights, including serving as Director of Surgical Services aboard the USNS Mercy, the Navy hospital ship based on the West Coast. He talks about lessons learned in deployed environments, as well as how the Special Forces Tactical Athlete Program was developed and in part inspired by his work as an orthopedic surgeon for multiple Navy SEAL teams. Following his retirement, Matt served as team physician for the New England Patriots and also provides expert consultative services for professional football, baseball, and hockey teams. Dr. Provencher is a researcher and has made many significant contributions in studying musculoskeletal injuries and human performance. He describes how organizations like the Society of Military Orthopedic Surgeons support cutting-edge research and contribute to orthopedic advancements across the globe. Find out more about Dr. Provencher and our previous guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Navy Captain Matthew Provencher to Wardox. Matt, thanks for joining us today. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Matt, you grew up in Durham, New Hampshire, and attended the Naval Academy. You actually have an interesting story that I listened to on the Jocko podcast about how you got into medical school. But tell us first how you got into the Naval Academy and then your unique story about getting into medical school. I would say that growing up in a small town in New Hampshire, like many of us that were in the military, you had the opportunity to be outside and be in your environment and be in the woods and the mountains for me was a big part of it. We also grew up near the ocean and love the water. So that was a big part of my upbringing. And my dad actually went to the Naval Academy. I didn't think I wanted to go. He was a service warfare officer. He was actually stationed in Newport for a while, right around the Vietnam War, went over there several times. Then actually was able to check it out. And they said, this is, this is a pretty cool spot. And, and part of my upbringing, part of, I think, who I, who I was and, and what do I enjoy. And I enjoyed being active and engaged and outside and some like-minded folks. I think that's sort of how, how it started. Now, I was looking at a number of other colleges, many very different from the Naval Academy. And so... Ended up there. So when my dad went there, my brother followed me there four years later, and he, he got the much better genetics being the F-18 pilot. My eyes went bad and, and kind of defaulted into medicine, but I wouldn't say it was a default. It was just kind of got lucky through really cool mentorship. And tell us about your story about going into medical school. That was a very interesting story after you graduated the Naval Academy. 
Well, I mean, yeah, in, in the day, and this was the late 80s, early 90s when I was in college, you had to have at least 2020 or 2025 vision to be able to be a pilot. And so, of course, one of the things that also I didn't mention that sort of landed me at the Naval Academy and was really had me amped about it was Top Gun, the first one. Not the second one, but the first Top Gun. And that had me super amped. I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to fly. I thought it was the coolest thing ever to be able to go that speed. And man, I love the electronic side of it. I love engineering. I knew I wanted to be an engineer. So that was a huge part of the, the initial Naval Academy existence was I want to be a fighter pilot. And everything was kind of tailored to that. Well, unfortunately, my eyesight quickly went down from 2020, 2025, down to 2040, down to 2050. And I was like, oh, is there any way I'm going to be able to pass my pre-commissioning physical, which was junior year? When I realized that was not possible, I started looking at other options. And in fact, I, I called my dad and I said, what do you think? He's like, well, go see Go see this guy, John Kelly. He was my chemistry professor there, but I see he's now the dean of students in literature from the Able Academy. The internet really isn't in existence back then. You can't really just look things up. But actually had one of the handbooks, college handbooks, and he was the dean of students. He's like, well, just go talk to him. So I met John Kelly, and John Kelly was actually his chemistry professor. He dusted off all these old folders. I walk into his office. It's got all these brown folders and dusty and... He actually dusted off my dad's, a couple of his tests and folders and things, he'd notes he had written on. He's like, I tried to get your dad to go into medicine, but he really wanted to be a Marine or go into surface warfare. You ever think about medicine? And so that's where the conversation got started and sort of switched gears from there. So you ultimately completed medical school and then trained in orthopedic surgery at the Navy Medical Center in San Diego. What was your training like? And now that you're been in the civilian sector for a while. How do you think that military training compares to the civilian side in orthopedic specifically? Simple answer. I, I loved it and trained trained us unbelievably well in orthopedics. It was amazing. I would do it again. Navy Medical Center San Diego, Balboa, as it's known, was a great spot. We had five residents a year. It was one of the largest programs at the time. I think Walter is a little bit bigger now just because of a research year, but we were extremely busy, but we also had the benefits of being in San Diego, where we had academic affiliations with UCSD and then tons of other great programs in town, like the Kaiser program, the Scripps program, the Sharp program. So we had a lot of academic presence in, in San Diego on top of a very busy tertiary practice or a residency, if you will. And like many of us that are listening to this, and certainly many others had it much harder than, than myself and even you two, uh, perhaps was we didn't have the 80-hour work week then. And so there was no residency requirements or restriction. We were on call all the time, and it was, it was a lot. And 9-11 uh, down very near the end of my residency, and so we, it became very busy very quickly and amped up. Fortunately, it took a while for the uh, war effort to get uh, ramped up quite a bit. There was an initial surge, obviously, and the you know, war casualties started ramping up, I would say, 2004, 2005, So they were things started ramping up there. But reality was it was great training, both peacetime and, quote-unquote, early wartime training. And we, the beauty of what I went into was orthopedic sports medicine, but there's so many great specialties that we 
trained in so well there just because of the unending young active population that presented to us with just very unique problems. Well, that's one of the unique things about your career that I think is important to bring up front. What you mentioned there is that you completed an orthopedic sports surgery fellowship at Rush University. Just to sort of lay the groundwork, tell us what is orthopedic sports surgery fellowship and what makes it unique for the orthopedic surgery field. So orthopedic surgery, many of the residencies out there is, is five years. You have five years of orthopedic training. I did an internship, actually went to Japan. You know, like many of us have doing military, you do your initial training internship, and then you do a, a general medical officer tour. I did a GMO tour. You could be a flight surgeon for three years. You could be a dive medical officer for three years. Some people do one, even two tours, sometimes even longer, and then come back and complete residency training. For me, I, I was sort of slotted to go to Okinawa, Japan, so I went there for a year after internship. And so you do the five years of orthopedics where you get exposed to all sorts of musculoskeletal medicine from hand surgery to spine to a lot of trauma, a lot of broken bones, torn muscles, torn tendons, torn ligaments. And especially that I eventually went into was orthopedic sports medicine, sports surgery. And probably the biased reason for that, I was a rower at the Naval Academy and it's all about mentors on our journey. And when I was rolling, I had a couple of injuries. I mean, they were not catastrophic injuries, kind of overuse type of injury. I had some rib stress fractures and we call intersection syndrome where you have a forearm and a tendon that has tendonitis as you do extension of your wrist and a few other things while, while I was rolling, but came across Captain Eddie McDevitt, who was the head team physician at the Naval Academy. And he said, hey, you ever think about orthopedics? After I was sort of thinking about medicine, I started hanging around Eddie McDevitt and uh, he's a legend in our sports medicine world in the military. And when you look at the military and sports medicine, which is taking care of uh, injuries of the, the shoulder, the knee, the hip, the foot and ankle, but injuries of the joint, injuries of cartilage, injury of muscle, tendon, meniscus, keeping you active and out there. That's what we do in, in sports medicine. That military has done an amazing job with that. And that really goes back to all three of the academies with a significantly rich history of team physicians there that are generally orthopedic sports medicine trained because they not only do all the, the surgery stuff, we also take care, take care of the teams. So having the background in sports injuries, sideline injuries, everything else was uh, something that I, I relished and went to train further along in a fellowship at Rush. And most of our fellowships are one year, finish up the Rush fellowship, actually after a few years uh, doing general orthopedics, because we all sort of have to pay our dues along the way, just like after a delay in internship, after a delay in becoming a staff, we all sort of have to pay our dues before you get your choice of training. So you ultimately came back and served as staff at Balboa in San Diego. And, and one of your jobs there was director of sports medicine and surgery from 2007, 2013. And that was a time of fairly high, still op tempo uh, going on in the Middle East. Tell us a little bit about that assignment and are there any particular cases that are, are memorable to your time as staff as a sports medicine director? So it was a great privilege to have, to have that job. And really, you know, our job was to act in duty back in the fight, keep them in the fight, let them get back to their job. And it's all about return to duty and getting them back. So 
we were really trying, with or without the up-tempo you described, which certainly helped sharpen our sword in our practice and really push the envelope and develop numerous innovations. But we were already doing that in the sports medicine world in the military because we have so many 18 to 40-year-olds, which is the bread and butter of sports medicine, whether it's a knee injury, a shoulder injury, a hip, your foot and ankle. This is what we, what we do and what we train for and what we love. The op-tempo and the war added a very unique twist on that where we had to get pretty innovative on how we reconstructed limbs that were in salvage mode because we were really, the part of sports medicine is being one of the joint experts, periarticular or how the uh, joint lining is reestablished and tendons of the muscles and the ligaments around those joints work to try to reconstruct those joints. So we're doing some really unique things in terms of working closely with our industry partners, especially in fixation techniques, new implants, stronger implants, new unique ways to do cadaver transplants, cartilage transplants, tendon transplants and transfers. We were really pushing the envelope because of the innovation that was necessitated because of the op-tempo and some of these really challenging injuries when you ask about some of those shoulders that have a very high velocity wound through them and would take off two-thirds of the joint, yet the rest of their arm and hand work read couldn't work their shoulder and they're 21 years old. Very unique injuries that we just don't see in the civilian sector that we really had to get creative with and try to come up with cool ways to fix these. And always were. Most, a lot of times they did, though. And it, it, what it showed, I think, me is the team effort, the, the C5 program we had, the Combat Casualty Care Program established at all of the big three uh, medical centers and on top of Army and Air Force. But really showed great team effort from not just the preoperative planning, but the surgery, but the postoperative, the physical therapy, the mental side of it, the mental health side of it, which but putting that all together for what we deem the warrior athlete really important for us to do and, and taught us a ton every day. So I'm curious. So you have these war wounded service members who come into Balboa, and I'm sure this is dramatically different from your fellowship training program where you were dealing with civilian sports medicine injuries. Can you take us through a little bit of the, the thought process and the collaborative teamwork that you would do in order to feel these new technologies for these unique-ish injuries that occur on the battlefield, but don't actually, we see them much in the United States? The magnitude of the war wounds, the blast wounds, is really unlike anything many of us in military orthopedics, general surgery, trauma surgery, neurosurgery, vascular, urology, you name it. We just don't see those wounds in civilian care. We don't see those injuries. We don't see those battle scars. That being said, the principles that you learn, on top of that, a big part of going to fellowship, this is a long time ago, almost 20 plus years ago, was you have a great mentorship base. And many times I would send my mentors, Achilles, Tony Romeo, Cole, Others, I'd be like, hey, what do you think about this case? And like, well, never seen it. Let me know how it goes. But here's some principles that we would employ to think about how to deal with it. And send me the pictures on. So I, it was really you know, a great 
group, a great umbrella of people and mentors and training and principles that was not only reinforced from our excellent training in the military, I'm doing full again in orthopedics, but it was also reinforced from the mentorship, which is why we all go into medicine. I think in the first place on some level is having great mentors along the way and those that you can lean on and, and ask tough cases and tough. One of the other interesting assignments that you've had that is fairly unique within the military is an opportunity to do humanitarian disaster relief missions. And you were the director for surgical services for five years on the Mercy. Tell us a little bit about that opportunity and any particular memories that come to mind. So one of, one of the best jobs I've ever had in the military, there's been several, but that definitely leads the list. Yeah. You can do all the surgeries you want and the next shoulder, the next knee surgery, the next hip, ankle, whatever. But what, what do you truly remember and garner from the military is a lot of things we learned at the Naval Academy was taking care of people, leading, leading organization. And I had the opportunity to be the surgical director of the Mercy, which... Obviously, as, as many listeners know, is there's the hospital ship. It's, there's two of them, the Comforts on the East Coast, Mercy on the West Coast. They're just over a 1,000 feet long. They're built back in the day to from converted oil tankers. They were built and commissioned out of San Diego, actually, that they transitioned oil tankers to do. And it's basically a 1,000-bed floating hospital. Now, at any given time, only 200, 250 beds are kind of ready to go, and a lot of the extra space is used things, but the flex capabilities are there. We have 10 ORs. We have a T-scanner. Kids have an MRI on the ship because there's too much metal. You can have the CT scanner and we have our own oxygen generating plant. Uh, you have a, a cardiology suite or an interventional suite, a neurology suite. So really a full capacity floating hospital. And in fact, it's independently credentialed as a hospital in the military. And so we have a commanding officer of the hospital and the ship is actually driven and maintained through the merchant marines. And so the merchant marines take care of the ship. And so you're basically on the ship right in the hospital. And so that really came to fruition several years before I, I was DSS. But several years before that, the United States through the State Department started Pacific Partnership as well as Continuing Promise on the East Coast. So Pacific Partnership, obviously, West Coast Mission, Continuing Promise was the East Coast Mission. And the what we found was with the Banda Acha disaster, which some may remember in 2006, with the tsunami that hit in Indonesia, the United States was called on for aid. Well, there's really not much out there, but if you bring a floating hospital, it's amazing. But guess what? The floating hospital had been chained to the pier in San Diego for years. I mean, it was sort of kept up, but not really. There wasn't the training, there wasn't the evolutions. The oxygen plant hadn't been fired up. The ores hadn't really been tested. But they did an admirable job for what they had of getting into the Banda Acha disaster uh, very quickly within a few weeks and providing significant care. So what born out of that was the mission to train and educate, train and educate, and really train on the job. And that's what Pacific Partnership was, as well as having the mercy be out there much more and in a better off tempo every year to every other year. And it continues to do that and stay fit, ready to go. And we do a, a ton of training on it. The mission was very interesting one of the Pacific Partnership. So as surgical service director, I was in charge. It fluctuated quite a bit. Obviously, leave from San Diego, I'd be gone about in seven months or something like that. But 
we'd stop in Hawaii and we'd go to Guam and the last two places we'd probably get supplies and we needed anything. And then we were going to about five or six other countries that was set up through the State Department. And the State Department, the embassies would set up sort of a humanitarian training exercise where we'd bring ophthalmologists on from Indonesia, ophthalmologists from Cambodia, general surgeons, urologists from uh, Vietnam to do cases alongside each other and help take care of uh, their people in country and they would get treatment on the ship and they would take care of them back back in their country and then just do the training or it was all about training education us running the ship and making sure that everything was yeah at the time it was about six to seven hundred people under the surgical director big directorate so it was great it was a great adventure long answer to your question but it was an, it was an amazing leadership opportunity the last thing I'll say is it was a multinational, many of our military missions are, it was a multinational mission where we had at least 10 to 15 NGOs, non-government organizations, Project Hope, Operation Smile, all sorts of other folks on board. And so you had to sort of organize that crew to make sure nothing happened. And then on top of that, we had about 20 partner military nations represented. So we were truly almost the United Nations on the ship. And you, know, you can imagine... The safety concerns when you have just a, a large, different, disparate groups, different cultures, different militaries, different medical systems all coming together uh, to perform. So what we did is we trained in a very safety-forward environment. No wrong site surgery, no wrong patient surgery, things like that, just beyond emphasized. And so we, we learned a ton on how, the, how we could really use this ship. So I mean, that, that seems like it's a pretty complex leadership environment, and you're a fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeon, and, and now you're leading this United Nations surgical efforts around the world. What kind of leadership lessons did you learn, and how did you prepare for that? Much of it was a follow-on from what they had taught us at the Naval Academy. It was also much of a follow-on from which you see at a military hospital, which you see during training, which you saw when you're initially out on the fleet doing a general medical officer tour. It's just, it's just on a bigger scale. And so some of the biggest lesson you've learned, at least I, I think I knew along the way, is you know, really keeping yourself accountable and keeping yourself to have the, the integrity, the accountability to, to lead and always do the right thing. The second is just always trying to espouse a culture where everyone's voice matters. Everyone's important. We all know that in the operating room. We all know that with the timeout. We all know that that sometimes the uh, biggest potential mishaps in the operating room were picked up by a surgical tech or one of the second perioperative nurses that just happens to come in. So really empowering people to do their best. I had uh, multiple committees that we would meet and go over everything. And I empowered my people. I empowered many leaders in the organization from perioperative nursing to PACU nursing to certain divisions within the operating room, general surgery to urology to ENT to ophthalmology. There, I don't know the first thing really about ophthalmology, but I need a group to be able to lead that. It was one of our busiest services you can imagine with want a cataract surgery that was being done because a lot of these patients live at the equator and the sun is very strong there. And as I found out, the chorea is very thin. And it's, I asked my ophthalmologist from the Navy, I said, how hard are these, how hard are these cataract surgeries? They said, on a scale of 1 to 10, these are about a 15. Unfortunately, there's some really good people there 
because we didn't want to miss out. We didn't want to be in the front page of the New York Times, but we did want to go and train and provide service and provide medical diplomacy, I think it will, around, around the world. So there are so many, there are so many lessons, but really it's about it's taking care of your people, setting a great example, having accountability yourself, but having accountability of your, of your people, but then giving them the, the power to lead, empowering them, telling them here's sort of commander's intent. I'm not going to tell you how to get there, but I, I would, I want you to do that back tomorrow and show me the rest. So many, so many little things there that really carry the, carry the way to develop an organization, whether it's 20 people or 2,000. We mentioned something that seems obvious to me, but now that you said it, but before you had said it, it wasn't quite, I didn't even think about it, but you said there's no MRI machine on the ship, the hospital ship. And so I'm thinking, okay, here we are, I'm interviewing uh, orthopedic sports medicine expert, and I know for certainty that MRI is one of the mainstays of what you do. And so we think about CT scans, we, we think of x-rays, we think about bones, at least I, I do, or blood vessels even. But now you don't have an MRI machine, and here you're trained in orthopedic sports medicine, and you're also going to a likely location that does not also have access locally to an MRI machine. How did you handle that as orthopedic sports medicine? For at least for me, I just you recalibrate and you said, okay, what did my predecessor do? What did my mentors do before MRI was ubiquitous? It was sort of a, when MRI came out, it was an absolute luxury to get an MRI of the knee. It was very expensive. It was hard to get. It took an hour and a half, two hours for the machine to spin. Now the spins are down to 11, 12 minutes, manix maybe. I mean, it's almost as, as quick as a CT scan these days. So you're exactly right. It's ubiquitous in our field. We use it all the time. That being said, you sort of go back and you get back to what did we first learn in medicine? Take a great history and do a great physical exam. Use the best imaging you have and then make your best decision. The imaging many times is just a, a template or a navigational aid of what you need to do. But a, a great history and physical really rules the day. And that's, that's why we go to medical school. <laughs> it's back to history, back to physical. In fact, I had many mentors say to me all the time, well, that's great. You just showed me the MRI. Can I order a history and physical first? Make sure we can. You helped establish Motion, which is the Military Orthopedic Tracking Injuries Network, which is a program that helps study musculoskeletal injuries and human performance. Tell us how that improves readiness and wellness of the fighting force. So we know in orthopedics and obviously many of our specialties, Military is about readiness and it's about return to duty. When can you get the sailor, your shipmate, back to duty? And to get them back safely. So we want to get them back efficiently. The only way we can really know how that happens, okay, we sign their document, you sign their fitness for duty, you take them off a limited duty board, you take them off a 30-day chit or whatever, not getting out of stuff. But then truly the only way we know is we have to collect that. And we need to know the end result. Uh, a very famous orthopedic surgeon back in the day, a mass general named Ernest Avery Cullinan, used to talk about the end result. And trustees at Mass General uh, actually said, we don't want to know that and centuries ago, but he was actually fired from the Mass General. But he was exactly right, and that's exactly what we do now in all of our specialties in medicine. We have to study our outcomes. We have to know what the end result is. Codman was right, and we need to know what that is. So 
we've been collecting outcomes. We knew that a long time ago. My One of my predecessors, John Webster, who was uh, my former chairman at the orthopedics of Balboa, he was a spine surgeon. He's like, you guys have got to study better your outcomes. You have all the imaging. You have all the MRIs, like you mentioned. They have all the data. It's 100% imaging capture. It's unreal. I do not have that in my civilian practice. So you got all that data. You got their history. You got their physical. You have Alta. You have CHCS. You have all these great medical systems that track patients worldwide through every interaction, whether it's therapy, everything. You've got to collect your data and you've got to get the outcome. So we decided we needed to do a better job collecting. We started literally on paper. I had a 10 or 12 page. It was probably way too long working back. It was some of the outcomes that we were really pioneering, some of the others that were something we needed to collect in terms of, you know, how your shoulders doing, how's your knees doing, how's your mental resiliency, how's your capacity, etc. So we know we needed to collect this. We started on paper, but we knew that wasn't good enough and we had to get to a computerized system. The computerized system was a lot of uh, sweat and tears to get to. Why? Because it's dot .mil. Dot .mil, not easy. And so it took us a while to get the, the con or the uh, certificate of net worthiness for the dot .mil. And we actually worked with the Army Analytics Group out of Monterey that was doing some mental health stuff. And we were able to finally get an electronic, all iPad, all touchscreen type version to be able to collect our muscles. Now, Several hundred thousand patients later and worldwide deployed, funded by the DHA. This is now really helping drive value-based care in the military, making decisions and readiness, making decisions and resources, helping us get our military members back to duty, more efficient, stronger, and better. So you mentioned one of the things that sports orthopedics does is it deals with athletes. And in part of your career, you had the opportunity to work with very elite athletes within the military, and you were the team position for Navy SEAL Team 1, 3, 5, and 7. Tell us a little bit about that experience. It was probably uh, one of the top three jobs I had in the military, also on top of a surgical director job. So I, I actually lived in Coronado while working at Balboa in San Diego and had the opportunity to, being sports medicine, go down and help the athletic trainers, the physical therapists, the team docs that were really assigned fully to the special warfare unit down in Cornell. And so we started just setting up a program where I would just, before work, like down to Coronado, or sometimes just drive, depending on what the timing was, from my house and stop by the training room. Because why? It's what we do in sports medicine. You spend a lot of time in the training room. You spend a lot of time with physical therapists, learning the athletic training uh, trainer language, and you integrate with the whole musculoskeletal team. And so for me, it, it was an amazing opportunity to work you know, closely with many of our uh, athletic trainers, our therapists, people like Jason Jagchu, who uh, really grew up with me down there and is still down there in Coronado, doing an amazing job with all our Navy Special Warfare athletes. The cool thing about that was, is we sought out in about 2000, five or so to where we knew we needed to do more. And so that's where sat down really literally on a napkin sketch and several of us from the East, several docs from the East Coast, words of athletic trainers, physical therapists. And certainly I don't want to take all the credit for this and very little, but we were part of a group of about five or six and literally at the Pease Bar in Coronado sat down and napkin sketched this one Friday afternoon of what the tactical athlete program and the top program looked like. What components 
guard warriors need performance at their mental health, nutrition, psych, well still skeletal, athletic training, stretching programs, all the way up to the repeated care, muscular care, surgery care. What does that look like? And so over four the next four to six years, War Calm on top of JSOC Joint Special Operations Command really and fully bought into this concept and have a really significant independent contract to run the human performance program that's fueling our, our special warfare. So it's really cool to be there at the infancy to be to have a hand at small one, but certainly one that I really enjoy in terms of how we led this next generation of a human performance program. And how, how did I know that this was working and, and pretty cool? Well, again, it was all about the outcomes and studying how we did and getting these folks back to duty and getting back better. And now we have uh, all kinds of outcomes and dashboards and how we monitor our uh, operators to allow them to be at their best and be in readiness, ready to go. So certainly some of these soldiers that are in the elite status, they get more resources that are available to them, such as this Special Forces Tactical Athlete Program, like you mentioned. What were some of the common injuries you saw in that population? And what were some of the ways that you could prevent those type of injuries for perhaps the rest of the military population that doesn't have access to this specialty program? Yeah, and I think I should first just clarify that although this was probably first hatched or maybe really fine-tuned with maybe special warfare and or Army, Army Special Warfare, Marine, Warsaw, Air Force, Special Warfare, all, all of those type of commands really helped us fine-tune that. So this was a ubiquitous project, but what we see now, and I'm actually helping consult on, on some of this, is this concept is being brought to the entire fleet, to those that drive ships, to those that drive subs, to those that are Marines, everything. We know that keeping our most valuable commodity which is our warrior athlete at their best, is the most important thing we can do in the military. Taking care of the warrior athlete and taking care of their families. We know that's absolutely key. So this has probably served on some level as a template for the military to follow. And of course, we're very proud of that because we know and we've seen it work and we know it can work and, and help the entire military out to help you be as the individual military person the best you possibly can be. So that's all going on right now. We're really proud of that at the infancy. And, and I would say that the injuries, the injuries I saw in Navy Special Warfare were amazing because the clientele that you're dealing with there is UE has, has an incredible amount of mental fortitude, resiliency, and strength. And so <laughs> I struggle my wake-up call the first year or two down there, and I always, I always just quit asking, like, well, how long has your shoulder been dislocated? I don't know, five years, Doc, eight years. I didn't have any time to take care of it. I needed to go and operate. So there's a lot of stuff like that. You don't see that generally in the civilian world. So the military, not just with the op-tempo and the war and everything else, but just based on the duty and based on what folks did, these injuries, because their their joints were so banged up and they were banging their bodies up so much, and it presented with some really challenging conditions, things that we just really hadn't seen. And so with that, what do we do? We studied it, we wrote it up, we researched it, we published on it to try to learn better. We didn't always get it right, but a lot of times we did. We had our mentors around helping us throughout the country and 
We help define a lot of this stuff, especially in, in certain conditions that you see so much more in the military. What would you say is an injury that's unique to a special operator that you may not see in your average population of even like elite athletes in other sports? Yeah, the, I, I think it comes back to sort of what we discussed was the, the resiliency. So my shoulder's been dislocating for five years. Force pro athletes, they're not going to, they're, they're barely going to tolerate a few NFL games, let alone five years and operate shoulder. So one of the biggest things we learned about in, is, is shoulder instability or shoulder dislocation. It's certainly one thing in the military sport is absolutely the entire world looks to us and our literature. Stress fractures is another one, interesting phenomenon, and obviously the, uh, through buds and training, Recruit Recruit Depot in San Diego, and on top of many others in the recruit recruit areas, Army Air Force. Stress fractures are unique entity that really there are some athletes and pro athletes new person that starts taking up marathon running or <laughs> trying to do an Ironman triathlon there gets some unique overuse injuries but th- those are those are some of the biggest things we see in the military on top of big ligament injuries in the knee cartilage injuries in the knee meniscus injuries in the knee those types of things really if you look at the disability, VA disability ratings and the numbers, data associated, you're looking at back from Westfield scale, which is probably about 80% of discharge med board diagnoses, 80% scale. What leads the way is back pain, knee, cartilage injury, meniscus issue, shoulder issues, and then other post traumatic arthritis. One of the things that has seemed to be kind of a hot item in professional sports is this idea of a comprehensive fitness, wellness, rehab program. Was that something that they got from the military? Where, where did that idea that on the napkin come up from? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I don't really know where, where the chicken of the egg was. Yeah. I do know, you know, going back to what we talked about before, the military has led the way in sports medicine. If you work at my mentors, unfortunately, many of which have passed. They were team physicians at the Naval Academy at West Point and Air Force Academy. And those folks really, on top of a slew or a handful of early orthopedic sports surgeons, that was that was sports medicine. That was sports surgery. That was taking care of athletes. So I do think a significant amount, of course, I'm totally biased. A significant amount came from the military. And now it's been fine-tuned uh, everywhere, right? I, I know we were doing the right thing when I, I went to, was hired to be head team position on New England Patriots, and it was first, first meeting with Bill Belichick, who was very fond of the military, and Navy, fond of himself. His dad, uh, Bill Belichick's dad, actually coached my dad at the Naval Academy football. So there was a, there was a lot of connections. Uh, Bill Belichick grew up at Naples, the Naval Academy, and. Unfortunately, he's having kind of a tough season this year with the Patriots, but but I was there during a, a pretty good run. But they they were pretty tuned up to the human performance for when I got there, but they definitely benefited from a bunch of the things we had tested uh, with warfare, with team folks, and you know, because I knew if it would work with special warfare, it could work in our professionals. So that's 
where I went to the we went to the crafts and and helped really juice up the human performance program without without using juice. You can't use any no 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 performance enhancing substances, but we just added a lot of bandwidth to the program based on the successes we had in the military with Navy Special Warfare. I know if the, if the SEAL team individual would use it, I know that uh, Edelman would be able to, Gronk would be. And that was, that was pretty much the case. And they really liked the concierge, really VIP approach that we approached the SEAL team folks. You had to know, I, I had to know more about every one of these operators or my team did than they did themselves. So we could help them perform with their nutrition, scores, how they were sleeping, how they were doing, their MRIs, their injuries, history, their exam, the same thing in professional sports. We had that plus all the resources that were very similar to the military behind. Now that's, it's really mainstream now to have all of that on top of now with the coolest thing is really the AI, the data, the analytics to really push that even further. So this may be completely wrong, but when I look at an injury in the NFL, I think of actually about role one, two, and three. And what I mean by that is there's a tent on the sidelines, which in my mind, I'm actually thinking, well, that's their role one. And then there's, they cart them off to the locker room. And then I'm thinking role two. And then when they have to go to the hospital, I'm thinking, well, that's role three. Can you sort of, if, if that's completely off the mark, let me know, but can you sort of give us an insight into what happens at each one of those locations as far as you being the team physician? No, you're, you are exactly right. <laughs> that's, that's, really how, that's really how we approached it. The, the sideline evaluation, the sideline tent now, which is reasonably new, the, the ability to do a great exam, to get a great history and see how they're doing, guess what? That's rule one. That's what you do. You get it, you treat on it, you test it out. We probably have a role of 1A, 1B back in the locker room where you're doing more concussion evaluation, quiet. Uh, you can get x-rays at every NFL stadium, even CT scans, usually not MRIs. It's usually the next day. But then we start thinking about, okay, does this person need to go higher level of care? And you see that sometimes immediately on the field, especially the more high-profile injuries that have happened in the last uh, couple of years, Demar Hamlin, obviously, example, and you know, how you, how you have that role one team on the sidelines completely tuned up. So, as head team position with the Patriots, I was really responsible for a team of fifty-three medical personnel on the field, role one in the NFL game. We were ready to go, and that included concussion experts. That in Foxborough, I had a neurosurgeon generally, usually was a neurologist. I had a neurosurgeon. I had two ER physicians, one on each sideline, okay, rapid sequence intubation on top of having the ambulance there with high end paramedics, plus full, full work capabilities. You had three to five orthopedic surgeons on top of other medical experts, internal medicine, sports internal medicine, concussion experts, athletic trainers therapists, even chiropractors, others, but you see, see how much room we had on the sideline. But at the end of the day, it's about 53 individuals at any NFL game ready to go roll one injury. You're exactly right. And you got to make those decisions when you go to roll one A in the locker room. And I thought about it exactly the same as you do. Or are we going to need to go to the hospital? Or are they coming back on the plane with us? Or are we going to get the morning? And then I'll see you back in the training room, which is probably roll twos. I got an MRI, I got all the imaging, I got another exam. And then 
really bad, then we take you up to the hospital at Mass General and take it. So just out of curiosity, kind of go to the rule four, rule five level. What's your feeling as a sports orthopedic specialist about these Achilles injuries that's happened to Aaron Rodgers and Kirk Cousins, and they're coming back potentially in the same season? I feel really bad for Aaron and, and Kirk, given their, given their injuries. One of my companies called Predictors, we look at this in a very high level to see how injuries matter or your slogan is health matter. It's all based on everything military. But the, the issue there is I've got a gazillion calls from the league, from the PA, from everything about turf versus grass. And they're like, okay, well, what's the deal with Achilles? What's interesting in Achilles no, we are our data. We have data going back about 15 years. Our data shows no difference in terms of injured your Achilles, grass or turf. It's the same incidence rate. So there are not the same numbers in certain other injuries. And when you look at that, our data would show that certain ankle sprains or ankle injuries are higher on turf any way you slice it. So the the ability for these two folks to get back is something we love to do in sports medicine. Better anchors, better sutures, tape sutures, better biologics, uh, biologic wraps, amnion wraps around the tendon. Aaron, I know, and I know his exact surgery, had what we call a bridge-type repair. And the ribs is not just a very linear strip, but a very broad area on the calcaneus. And having much broader compression, better compression, using anchors and techniques to be able to reapproximate the anatomy. It's not rocket science. We all know in our specialties, we want to be able to reapproximate the anatomy, give patients what they had before, but having the implants and technology to do it better has really changed the game. On top of that, biologics, amnion wraps, PRP, stem cell, quote unquote, stem cell injections. We only do so much in the United States, but we really call bone marrow aspirate concentrate from the pelvis. We're really trying to enhance the healing of these injuries. So, yeah, at the end of the day, Aaron Rodgers is saying he's coming back in about uh, six weeks, like three to four months from his injury. And Achilles is, it, it's pretty amazing for an NFL quarterback, but it, I, I don't, for me, it's not unheard of based on our techniques and, and what's going on now. We usually take more of a conservative route of the NFL. You want to re-injure it. You want to make sure the muscles are good. And let's face it, if you're a half second off in the NFL, you're getting burned. You're going to miss the pass. You're going to miss the catch. So the amount of muscle conditioning, even though you may be cleared and your tendon's good and everything's healed, but the amount of muscle and proprioception and how you have to train your body to get back to that level so you're not half a second off and getting burned down the sideline by a wide receiver is huge. And that takes months. That's why Kyler Murray, quarterback, very local quarterback for the Cardinals. The reality is it's almost 11 months or more from an ACL. In the civilian world, military world, that's generally seven, eight, maybe nine months. But it, it can take a while to get back to that profession. So you also serve as a second opinion for injuries that happen in the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NHL. What could military medicine learn from the injuries that occur in professional athletes? The reverse of what we've been talking about earlier. I'm completely biased. I think there's much more the other way, but I think what I think we can what I think we can continue to do better is and what the the professional organizations are really professional sports organizations in all levels, all types of sports, Olympic athletes, men and the women that participate in sports at 
the amateur, the high amateur level, the professional level, you name it, collegiate level, what is now available from human performance. We need to do more of that in the military. We don't want to fall behind. We were a leader in, but we don't want to fall behind now, get on this, so that we can provide ubiquitous optimization of care, taking care of our number one asset in the military, which is our people. And we do that, that will lead the way forward. So we have to, we help them with the beginning, but we got to make sure we're still leading the charge in this realm. So military orthopedics has a society, it's called the Society of Military Orthopedic Surgeons, SOMOS, and you're on the board of directors. Tell us a little about that organization, who's part of it, and, and what does it do? So the Military Orthopedic Surgeon serves to advance, research, educate, train orthopedic surgeons that are in the military, involved in the military, or have an interest in military orthopedics. So we, we have a really robust combination of military surgeons, retired military surgeons, surgeons that used to be in the military that, that still stay involved, and then a great cadre of civilian surgeons that help. And we've got a great contingent of just say trauma surgeons. And we've had numerous uh, orthopedic trauma surgeons, civilian specialists at Shock Trauma in Maryland, at Harborview up in Seattle, at uh, Sacramento and Denver Health and San Antonio and Dallas and many other places I'm not mentioning, but the, the civilian military partnerships that come out of this society is something we've really uh, enjoyed because we know we can be smarter together, we can work together, we can learn from our civilian colleagues that are taking care of trauma day in, day out, high-end level one trauma, such as shock trauma. And we've also learned a lot from a ton of DOD grants and, and grant funding, not just in trauma, but also sports medicine and orthopedics in general through these civilian partnerships and, and through SOMOS. So SOMOS has been exceedingly helpful to help us advance military orthopedics and make sure we're doing the best for our service. Okay, two-part question. Tell us what you do now, and then can you tell us an interesting case that you have from your military career? So currently, I'm no longer the head team position for the, the Patriots, so it's, it's actually... A blessing in disguise. It's a, it's a very, very busy job. You're one of the full-time niche medical folks. You still have your regular jobs with peak surgeon and doing all that stuff, but you you travel to every game. You're at every game. You're in the training room four times to five times a week. You get to go to the NFL Combine on an all-expense-paid trip, which is the Combine in February. And uh, Indianapolis and hang out there and check out all the new players. There, there's a ton of responsibility with the the NFL. So now that I'm no longer doing that, serve and many of my partners actually in Bill Colorado in the Stephen Clinic. We we serve as uh, second opinion physicians for many in the NFL, NHL, baseball, the athletes. And it's really cool to uh, work with the agents, work with the athletes, agents, work with the athletes, work with a lot of the athletic trainers throughout the leagues that we know, and the therapists, directors of human performance. And we get calls all the time about uh, injuries. And we, we, we get sent a lot of MRIs to look at and take check out and come up with opinions. But we also get a chance to talk to you know, the player, the agent. Many times we, we get the opportunity to treat them here. 
uh, very special. It does add another layer of stress, but it's it's all good. And then how about an interesting case from your military career? So I, mean, I would say some of the most interesting cases from the military career have to deal with you know, getting people back and using innovation. So we we had the opportunity, I think I talked about some reconstructing joints and surfaces, surfaces, tendon and reuse certain bone products. In fact, one of the bone products we came up with was a donated part from the ankle that we put in the shoulder. And people, why'd you put a cadaver piece of ankle shoulder and you know, look at you like you have, <laughs> you're crazy and you have all these crazy ideas. But after a lot of study and everything else, the, the reason we came up with this was to increase the ability to get bone products to, so one of the conditions you have is bone loss in the shoulder if you dislocate times. And at the end of the day, you have to reconstruct. We're always trying to find a solution for that, meaning let's reconstruct that with fresh bone, fresh cartilage from the glenoid, from the socket of the shoulder. The problem was the graft companies did not want to harvest shoulder because a variety of contamination factors. The gift of human life is something very special. Out of a human life, on, on top of all the organs, on top of the kidneys, on top of the heart, on top of the liver, you get a high-end contamination or class three contamination, you would get, you would invalidate all the grafts, especially the musculoskeletal grafts. There are about 180 musculoskeletal grafts from every gift of life they use for transplanting thousands and hundreds of thousands of times every day. So one of the procedures we've fortunate to help, help develop and out of Balboa was taking a piece of ankle bone because of shoulder bone and the ankle bone fits perfectly in the shoulder bone, the glenoid socket. And so it's called the dyslatibial allograft or the end of the, the allograft, the donor bone. And now it's kind of present worldwide to be able to help reconstruct defects. I, I really, I remember our first case that were done in the world there in about 2006 or seven that we came up with. And uh, he, was, he was a football player that played in, uh, he was a military individual, but also played uh, football, semi-pro, and had dislocated his shoulder a number of times. He was just trying to be a great military member in the Navy. And couldn't because the shoulder was dislocated and failed a bunch of procedures. We ended up in distal tibia, and fortunately, he was followed up with him a few years ago. It's really, some of those victories were really, really cool. And the innovations that have come out of military orthopedics and military medicine in general are truly amazing to help to help us. So that's just one small one, but there's so many others. Do you have any interesting stories of the NFL and the military? Yeah, it's very unique. And not all of us have the privilege of, of serving in the military. And I, I really valued all 27 years that I was fortunate to serve. And one of the things we did, and this is a, this is a classic Belichick story. He, and it's like late October, one season. It was actually during our Super Bowl run when we went on to beat Seattle in that last second pickoff in the end zone with Malcolm Butler. So it was during that, that Super Bowl season. Of course, we didn't know it at the time, but Belichick grabs me and he's like, all right, Matt, no Tony Juan, but in a few weeks, we're going to play Green Bay. It's going to be bleeping cold out there and bleeping this. And da, da, da. so after Green Bay, we go and play San Diego Chargers. And we're actually going to go from Green Bay to San Diego and we're going to stay in San Diego for a week. Now, we're not this college team. We're not this. We don't do, we're not doing SeaWorld. We're not doing the zoo. We're not doing that 
what do you think we should do? And I was like, I think about it for a second. I like, let's go to the Naval Hospital in San Diego. Let's go to Balboa. Let's go visit some wounded warriors. He's like, Burge, get in here. Burge is his executive assistant. Great guy. Burge, get in here. We're going to set this up. So he sees me the next few days. He's like, all right, so far, great, great uh, response to this from the team. Things like this have to go through the NFL PA, the Players Association. They got to go all these approval process. It's got to go through the captains. It's got to go through all the stuff. And so they basically, about a week or two later, coach comes to me, well, I thought it was going to be 10, but all 53 of the starters plus the 10 practice squad and all the coaches want to go visit the Wounded Warriors of Balboa. And I was like, ooh, okay. We got to really turn this on and figure this out and and, and show the show. But I, I think it's probably been, in the, I don't know, maybe recent history has changed a little bit, but at least at the time in 2016, there was really no other team that had gone en masse to a hospital, let alone a military hospital. And so we set it up and... Jose Acosta was the, the CEO, and of course we had Braden and Gronk and Adelaide. And you know, Captain Acosta did a great thing in that he said, listen, why don't we have all of the players sort of divided up by the state they're from, where the college they went to, and we'll sort of divide up the wounded warriors that are at C5 or inpatients or wherever around the hospital and visit them. And it was really an, an amazing event. We all, we were practicing at University of, I think, San Diego that, that day or UCSD or something. We get on all the buses, five or six of them, and all pull into the main turnaround at the flagpole of Balboa and entire New England Patriots team gets off and all their shirts and they're all kind of dressed up and ready and they practice stuff. And they get disseminated around the hospital. And so you had 53 plus the 10 practice players plus all the coaches we were there probably an hour and a half for two hours, and I was walking around making sure everyone was integrated, which really wasn't hard. I mean, the players were completely into it, completely fired up about it. I had, we were boarding the buses, and if I could count the number of players that I could actually see either tears streaming down their eyes or their eyes sort of welled up, I would be at least 75% of the team. And in fact, people like Vince Wilfork and Edelman came up to me and said, Doc, this was like unreal. I, I'm supposed to be giving motivation to a, this wounded warrior that doesn't have legs, has one arm. And this guy is telling me to go kick butt on Sunday against the Chargers and go do this and go do that. This wounded warrior is motivating me way more than I was probably even motivating him or her. And it was, it was just, it was extremely touching. Uh, moment, I, I think for the whole team, it really helped the team gel on, on many levels to put who they are and what they are as pro athletes in perspective. They're not going overseas to Afghanistan or Iraq or sandbox to do certain things overseas, and they're putting their they're putting their bodies on the line every week, but they're not putting their lives on the line every day. And I think that was really humbling. So the next next morning, I see Bill, I see Belichick, and he never. There's no praise from Belichick ever. He's like. He's like, man, I just got to tell you, this was, this was probably one of the best things I've ever done as a, as a head coach. And I really want to thank you for setting it up. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, now we got to get to the game. He's like, that was about it. But he was <laughs> yeah. about the most praise you get from Bill. But we weren't in it for that. We were in it for just an amazing experience for the team and, and the Wounded Warriors, really, is, is what we were wanting. So, yeah, people talked about that visit for years. So, cool story. But that's, that's what we have in military medicine. Don't, don't, don't. Don't forget to take advantage of 
all those opportunities and cool things you have that are just sitting right there in front of you and go, go do those cool things that no one else outside of the military gets to do and expose them to that if you can. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Matthew Provencher on Mordock's podcast. Matt, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to this nation. Wonderful. Gentlemen, thank you so much. It's a great honor. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.